one of the metaphors that I use is imagining that that guilt is like a faulty check engine light on your car dashboard. So it's like your car has just been serviced, the oil's changed, like everything's fine, but the stupid light just keeps going off and it doesn't actually give you any meaningful information. So you can ignore it. You can just say it's broken. The guilt is not actually your moral compass. I've been having some mind-blowing conversations with women in preparation for an upcoming book I'm working on. These women, all fire starters, uncovered their spark and they're using it to make change in their lives and in the lives of others. During the month of January, I am so excited to share a few of these conversations, one each week, because we could all use a little fire in our lives as we start the new year. Make sure you're subscribed to my Substack at shannonwatts.substack.com to listen to these transformative conversations with women who are living on fire. I am so excited to be talking to Dr. Pooja Lakshman, a psychiatrist who specializes in women's health. When Pooja was 28, she blew up her life. She left a less than a year old marriage. She dropped out of her psychiatry residency at the Stanford University School of Medicine, and she joined a cult in San Francisco. But two years later, after she was immersed in the group's spiritual practices, she became disillusioned and moved back into her parents' home in Pennsylvania. She started to rebuild her life, but when she talks about that time, she has said, I turned 30 in my childhood bedroom. I was depressed and almost suicidal. But now, a decade later, Pooja is a clinical psychiatrist in Austin, Texas, where she works mainly with women, including moms. She's also an assistant professor of psychiatry, specializing in women's health at the George Washington University School of Medicine. And she's an entrepreneur. Her company, Gemma, is a physician-led women's mental health community. Pooja recently published her first book, Real Self-Care, a transformative program for redefining wellness, crystals, cleanses, and bubble baths not included. The book draws on case studies from her practice and her research to explain why the self-care practices being offered to women today are not working. TLDR, Pooja says bubble baths won't beat burnout. I'm interested in learning more about how Pooja differentiates between faux self-care and real self-care. What obstacles do women face in the practice of self-care internally and externally, and how can we overcome them? And how can real self-care help women live lives that are more authentic and more audacious? And what wisdom can Pooja share with all of us about how self-care can help us find our spark and protect it throughout our lives? In short, how can self-care help women live lives in the most authentic way possible? Pooja, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It's such a pleasure to be here, Shannon. Thank you for having me. So before we get started, I know that sometimes the phrase self-care can be sort of loaded. Is this what we should call it, self-care? You know, it's funny. I When I was trying to think of titles for the book, the first title, actually, when I went out with the book proposal was Empowered. And we ultimately ended up changing it to Real Self-Care because I felt like I wish I had a better word because I think everybody rolls their eyes at this point at self-care because we're all just inundated with the essential oils and the Instagram ads and the, you know, pretty beige vitamins and whatever, whatever. But I think we need to reclaim it. Like we need to get back to that Audre Lorde definition of self-care is self-preservation, you know? And I think that there's a real 
fire behind that, you know, we're talking about a spark, right? I think that there is power in reclaiming what is ours and and making it our own as well. Okay, good. So I will feel fine calling it self-care, but I also love the self, the the phrase self-preservation. Let's go back to your origin story because I, <laughs> I'm sure when I covered that a little bit in the introduction, people are like, what? I mean, y- you've been through a lot and you've done a lot of things. How did you end up here focusing on the practice of self-care? You know, I think my story, when you hear it summarized in a couple sentences, it sounds quite extreme and it was extreme. You know, I was very disillusioned with psychiatry and mainstream medicine. That's what led me to joining this group. I thought that there could be some sort of like magical feminist utopia where it was just like unicorns and rainbows and spirituality and sexuality and meditation. But it turned out that 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 doesn't exist. There is no magic solution. And yes, there's so many hypocrisies and contradictions in mainstream medicine for sure. But there's also just as many in the wellness world. I saw that. I proved that to myself and came back to medicine really, you know, head down in defeat. It wasn't like a triumphant return. It was like, as you described, I turned 30 in my childhood bedroom. Thankfully, my parents let me crash there without having to pay rent, you know, and help me get back on my feet. That was not, it, it was not glamorous, but it informs where I'm coming from in real self care. Because now as a board certified psychiatrist who's on the faculty at George Washington University. Yes, I have that clinical expertise and this professional background, but I think even more important is that I've been there. Like I have, I've gone through it. I've been, I've had my heart broken really by wellness, you know, and I had to come to understand over these, I'm going to be 40 in December. So, you know, 10 years later, again, that there is no shortcut and real self-care actually is about how you treat yourself and how you make decisions in your life, small decisions and big decisions. Real self-care lives inside both of those. And for me, I've come to learn that basically every couple of years, I go through another big transformation of real self-care. Originally, I kind of started on the full-time faculty route, thought I was going to climb the academic ladder, but then realized that was not for me. I had a little bit too much of that creative social media bug in me. So there's all these iterations and and you use that word authentic, which I think is really important. It's learning to listen to that inner voice. Was there a specific time when you thought, okay, this is my passion. This is my calling. This is my spark, if you will. Or has it been something throughout your life that you've always been interested in? I grew up in an immigrant family. My parents are from India. And for those listening who don't know this, South Asian culture is quite patriarchal. So from the beginning, I kind of came from an upbringing where as a girl, there were things that I wasn't allowed to do. I wasn't supposed to date. I was, wasn't allowed to drive my car to King of Prussia Mall because it was too far away and the highway was dangerous, right? Meanwhile, my cousin who was a boy and a little bit older than me could do whatever he wanted. That's just a small example, but it sticks in my head. So kind of like the plight of women women was always, I think, deeply um, embedded in my DNA and just sort of the, the injustice too. I spent 
many summers growing up in India, in Bangalore, where my family's from, and kind of learning about, um, you know, Hinduism and, and frankly, the patriarchal nature of Hinduism. So all of these things were sort of like rolled in for me. And when I went to college at Penn, I was a women's studies major. So I had this dream of becoming a women's studies professor and not to throw my mom under the bus. But uh, I remember having a conversation with her at that time where I was like, I don't think I want to go to medical school. I think I want to be a women's studies professor. And she was like, but how can you do that? You know, like, how would you make a living? That was always, I think, the thread. And now I've come to this place where I am I'm doing that in my own way. And again, that word authentic, that you can take that spark, you can take the dreams and then shape them to what fits for you in your life. Do you feel like this is the result of something inside you? Is it is it a gift or a talent or a calling? I think that it's multifactorial. So it's certainly a result of trauma from, you know, just little T trauma from going through our world, going through medical training, all the different experiences that I've had. Some of it sure is, is talent in terms of my ability to write, my ability to speak, put things together. It's also stubbornness, you know, just being one of those people. And I'm sure that you can identify with this Shannon, who just, you know, when, once you see something, once you visualize it, you just can't pull away from it. So I almost, I also almost feel like it's not fully a choice that it's, you know, all threads just kind of lead back, whether I'm writing a book called Real Self-Care or starting a company that is educating women or posting on social media or supervising residents at George Washington University. You know, it's, they all kind of come back because for better or worse, this is what I'm most interested in and excited about. I will say that it comes with a cost, right? Because when your work is something that you're so driven by and excited by and passionate about, you you run the risk of really neglecting other aspects of your life. Let's talk about the, the self-care industry. It's a, a multi-billion dollar industry. It sells us quick fixes that really don't ultimately enhance our lives or, or address the larger societal problems that are creating our stress and anxiety. Is that what you refer to as toxic wellness? Yeah, I refer to that as toxic wellness. I refer to it as faux self-care as well. So it's any of the products and services that you're purchasing that are coming outside of you that you're using where you have this sort of fantasy that that's going to be the thing that fixes your problems, whether it's the, you know, the juice cleanse or, you know, the bullet journal. I have a whole section on productivity and how for people who maybe roll their eyes at wellness, uh, they can be seduced by productivity as another means to feel like you have control over your life. And all of these different methods, right? I call them methods in a book. They are marketed to be sort of the cure to all of your problems, to the stress, to the anxiety, to the feeling of hopelessness. My hypothesis that I'm putting forth in the book is actually the real self-care is the internal work that you do. And the method, it's not that the method is bad. It's, it's that you have to do the internal work to actually fully receive the method. 
why is it that women are in particular susceptible to this faux self-care? I mean, I think it's kind of intuitive, but I'm, I'm interested in your take on why women struggle to practice self-care, but men don't seem to. Well, women, as we know, are the workhorses of our society. Um, Jessica Calarco, a sociologist, has that just amazingly powerful quote about other countries have safety nets. The United States has women. It, it, by almost any kind of economic or cultural measure, mothers and women in America and around the world are penalized for any number of choices that we might make, but especially when it comes to motherhood and having to balance career and parenting and, and facing all sorts of, you know, challenges when it comes to how to navigate the world. So toxic wellness sees that as a marketing opportunity. Women and mothers have tremendous buying power in the American economy. I'm not an economist, but I imagine those numbers are very high. So in order for our version of capitalism to keep going, you need to tell people, the people who are the most powerless and oppressed, that the solution to their problem is something that they can buy. The other thing that I think that is interesting about all this is time, you know, like who has discretionary time? I think I read one study that showed that American mothers have like 30 minutes of quote unquote, free time per day. And, and I, I think that this, that's so telling because to me, that gets at the root of the problem. It's like the patient who comes into my clinic and says, Dr. Lakshman, I'm stressed out. I'm burnt out. I'm not eating well. I'm not sleeping well. And I feel like it's my fault because I have the meditation app that I know I'm supposed to be using. But by the end of the day, once the kid I'm done with work, the kids are in bed, the dishes are clear. I don't want to meditate. Like all I can do is sit there and doom scroll. Like that's the only thing my brain is capable of doing. And then I feel bad because everybody's telling me that all I need to do is meditate or go to yoga. It's like, well, how are you supposed to find that time? You know? So, so again, it's, it's not an accident. It's not that the, just that the status quo isn't working. It's that the extent of the brokenness of our systems demand massive and radical change. And you said that change starts inside of all of us. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. So this is really leaning on the work of Black queer thinkers from the 1950s and the 1960s, the kind of the origins of self-care as self-preservation and kind of a political movement as well, especially for the most marginalized groups in America. When you believe that you are the problem, then there's no way to actually get to healing or well-being because you spend all of your time trying to fix yourself or beating yourself up. But when you understand that the problem is outside of you, it's in our systems, it's in our lack of government policies that are actually progressive and, and supportive to families, that it's in the education system, it's in the way that, you know, housing is set up in America, it's in all, it's like in the fabric of everything, then you stop blaming yourself and you have the chance to actually have a new and different type of conversation with yourself about wellness. So there are a lot of obstacles, clearly. And then you come up with a lot of solutions that you share in, in your teachings and your practice in your book. 
Can you talk about the solutions? You you say we should identify our values, for example. What does that mean and how do we do that? Yeah. So I have four principles of real self-care. Boundaries, compassion, values, and power. They sound uh, pretty simple. I will say that they're not easy. They are simple. You can maybe boil it down to do less things, be nicer to yourself, figure out what matters the most and do more of that and either ask for help or give help. Boundaries is number one because you can't even get to figuring out what your values are until you've identified your own personal space and emotional space. And my take on boundaries is a little bit different than some of the other things that you might hear. So I think of boundaries as the pause. So I share an example in the book of, I had just graduated from residency and this was around 2016. And it was my first day on the faculty at GW and it like my dream job, a supervisor in the women's mental health clinic. And I was like all bright eyed and bushy tailed. And my, my mentor took me out for lunch and she gave me a piece of advice. She was like, Pooja, you don't need to answer your phone. You can let it go to voicemail listen to what they want and then decide what your response is. And that was like completely mind blowing to me because I had just finished medical school and residency. And that in those days you had like a pager that would go off and you had to like answer right away. And, and I realized, Oh, it's, it's the pause. And then you decide, you could say, yes, you can say no, you can negotiate. So a boundary isn't always no. A boundary is the pause and then yes, no, negotiate. You decide the no might not be accessible, right? Because we all know that no, especially for women, especially for black women in corporate America, no comes with a cost for sure. But if if you want to say no and you're in a situation where maybe your livelihood would be impacted by the no, then you make a note for yourself. You say, you know what? Six months from now, a year from now, I want to be closer to, to that no, to being able to say no. I want to put in place changes in my professional life or in my family life or whatever it is so that I feel like no is accessible, even though it is not right now. So that I is- I love that one. idea of a, of, a, of a boundary just being a pause. Right, right. I think for so many moms, and I know I keep using that, ta- saying moms as my clinical practice is mostly pregnant and postpartum women and, and women with little kids- you know, you're the CEO of the house. There is no, right? You're just constantly, people need things. There's just lots of people coming to you with needs and you, you know, you don't even have a second to like stop and breathe. So to to put that pause in and to say like, I'm allowed to put that pause in, like that's huge actually. So this in practice seems like an amazing, wonderful idea, but just like any practice, there are going to be obstacles to, going down that path. What are some of the things you see prevent women from practicing self-care? And and do you have suggestions for overcoming those obstacles? I think that guilt is one of the biggest. That's what I see in my practice every single week. You know, I want to set boundaries with my in-laws. We we really don't want to travel over the summer to the vacation house with the big family, because every time we go, we're actually all miserable, but I would feel so guilty. I would feel so bad. Everybody's going to be mad at me. I'm going to be the bad guy. I'm going to be difficult. So that feeling of guilt, and even though you know that you don't want to do it, 
you're afraid of the backlash. You're afraid of what's going to come. And so the way that I like to work with guilt comes from acceptance and commitment therapy act for short. This type of therapy is a little bit different than some of the other therapies that are out there, like things like CBT, because ACT actually uses more of a a mindfulness framework. And I know that, you know, we've talked about before about your um, Buddhism practice. So it kind of pulls from that. And it says that we actually can't get rid of hard thoughts and hard feelings and, and that our job is to accept them and to tolerate those difficult feelings and thoughts. And one of the ways that we can do that, or like one of the tools that we can use is metaphors to help us sort of visualize our mind and and not feel like something like guilt has so much power. So one of the metaphors that I use is imagining that, that guilt is like a faulty check engine light on your car dashboard. So it's like your car has just been serviced, the oil's changed, like everything's fine but the stupid light just keeps going off and it doesn't actually give you any meaningful information. So you can ignore it, right? You can just say it's broken. I don't, I don't need the guilt is not actually your moral compass. And if you allow it to be your moral compass, that's when your spark gets diminished, right? That's when you're in danger of losing access to your spark and and having to dig and find it again. As we're having this conversation, it makes me think about all the times I've been asked in interviews and podcasts how I practice self-care <laughs> as an activist. And I do often say, I love a nightly bubble bath. I work out. I meditate. I try to hike and get outside. I feel like I don't want to do more. And yet maybe the activism is not itself self-care. I mean, how would you look at that? I, as I've been talking about the framework, I've come to understand that there's like kind of two forms of self-care. There's 101, which is um, like a life raft. You know, you're out in the ocean, you're, the waves are choppy. Somebody throws you a life raft. And that's a little bit more akin to the faux, the bubble bath. But there's different ways to do that bubble bath. Like if you're setting boundaries and you're like getting clear on why this is important for you and you're actually present in the bubble bath, that's great. That's real self-care, right? And that's that life raft. You need that relief. And then if we get to like the 400 level class, you've kind of sublimated a lot of your own personal, internal emotion and drive and moved it forward to giving back. And and in the book, I talk about examples of patients who, you know, advocated for paid parental leave or were able to get better mental health policies in the workplace. And none of those things, it's not that everybody is going to take that on. That's not my suggestion. But the interesting thing to me is that in all of those cases, none of those women started out saying, I'm going to be an advocate or I'm going to be an activist. They just started out wanting to fix something in their own lives or you know, not wanting to hate their husbands or whatever the case is, right? And from that came this larger movement. So if we stay in a consumer mindset, if we stay in a commercial mindset at the bubble bath, then we'll never get there. But at least when self-care is personal and internal, we have a choice and a chance to get to those larger places. Let's talk about the real life outcomes that you have seen in your own work, 
Have you seen the ability to practice self-care the way that, that you define it? Help women live their most authentic, fullest lives? Absolutely. And and like I said in the book, I have case examples and stories that are more maybe on a, a larger scale in the workplace or in in terms of social change. But there's also stories that are very much in the home sphere too. I talk about a patient who for her real self-care was deciding to use formula instead of breastfeeding her baby because she came to understand that breastfeeding was not working and it was making her feel resentful towards her daughter. Right. And that is like, that's a deeply personal choice. And it's, but it was the practice of real self-care, setting those boundaries, getting clear on what her values were. And then once she made that shift, then she was able to actually go back to, you know, she started going to her Pilates class again, or I think getting on the treadmill and going to her support group and other more kind of like other methods that used to work for her began to work again because she had made that shift and done that deeper real self-care work. So again, it's not that the methods are bad. It's just that you have to kind of do the internal work up front. I will say the one thing that that no self-help book can solve, full, full disclosure, is that all of this takes time. It really takes time. There's no shortcut. Um, and anybody who tells you that there's a shortcut, you should be a little bit suspicious of. Boundary, learning to set boundaries, getting comfortable with your guilt, and then really understanding what's most important to you. It's a process of data collection and really getting to know yourself. And the thing is also that we're all changing constantly. Each season of our lives, whether it's motherhood, whether it's a new job, whether it is, you know, parents that are aging, whether it's divorce or loss, like change is just, it's the only, you know, certainty in life. And and in each turn, you'll have to kind of relearn each of the principles. You mentioned that, you know, self-care changes throughout your life and and you and your life right now, you know, you're a mom of a, of a young child. You have a busy life. Uh, all of the stuff we're talking about, your book and your, your career. Talk a little bit about how you're able to practice self-care right now. It's a constant moving target, I will say. Some of the new practices that have come up for me over, I will say, even in the last month is every Sunday I look at my calendar and I take things off. If there's anything on there that gives me a feeling of dread and it's not something that is required for my livelihood or my kid's school or, you know, like an obligation that I can't say no to, if it's something else, then I will take that off. I also am scheduling, like actually scheduling a lot more alone time. So all of these things that are purely for my own enjoyment and have nothing to do with, with my career or professional development or taking care of patients or taking care of my son, I'm, I'm having to put even more of that into my weekly routine. I think because the demands of my professional life have increased and become more require are requiring more of me and requiring new skill sets that I'm developing over time. I, and I will say one other thing too, is I'm doing a lot more tracking than I used to of how I spend my time and what my days are like. And then at the end of the week, going back to see what worked and didn't. Those are great ideas that I think we can all put into practice. Pooja, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Me too, Shannon. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Firestarters. Be sure you're subscribed on Substack to shannonwatts.substack.com so you don't miss a single episode of our conversations. If this episode meant something to you, please share it with a friend. And thank you so much for joining me.